Amen. So, as, as I said a few weeks ago, if you were here for our first breakfast sessions, um, Isaiah is a historical book written by a historical man. It's the vision, Isaiah 1 verse 1 says, concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Spanning from the 740s BC to the... Um, I don't know how you say it, the late 600s, which is kind of earlier, you know, like the 690s um, BC, spanning around 40 years, the life's work of this man Isaiah, spanning four kings of Israel and four emperors of Assyria. A gigantic book. Um, As I said a few weeks ago, it's a little like the place that Romans has in the New Testament in terms of its theological significance and scale. So Isaiah has... In the Old Testament, it's a great mountain of a book. It's the most quoted of the writing prophets by New Testament authors. It's enormous. It's beautiful in its poetry. It's astonishing to see the prophecies it gives that are fulfilled in the Christian gospel. Uh, It gives this vision of God that really stands out. It's this high point of its theology of God in the Old Testament as the Holy One of Israel. But also so many... Christian gospel themes that are so familiar in the New Testament just jump out of the pages of Isaiah so clearly, even in these opening chapters we'll look at a second time this morning. Sin and judgment, atonement, forgiveness, universal salvation, a new creation, salvation to the ends of the earth, the the promised Messiah who will bring it all about, who was a suffering servant, empowered by this. All these things come together um, uh, here in the book of Isaiah. You grasp Isaiah and it unlocks the New Testament, which throws you forward to see the, uh, uh, the New Testament in greater clarity. And then as you see the New Testament in greater clarity, it helps you appreciate all the more just how fantastic Isaiah is. We're looking a second time at these opening five chapters that are kind of an intro bit um, before the opening credits. Then you get Isaiah 6, the commissioning of Isaiah, and we're away. It's a kind of like a preface. And... In a way, chapter 1 introduces the themes of that preface, um, in, sen- in a sense, the themes of the whole book. Isaiah chapter 1, we'll first look at, um, is this summoning to a trial, God is the ruler of the world, calling Israel to account before the whole universe. So chapter 1, verse 2, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, the Lord has spoken. I read a child and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. This kind of summoning Israel to account. This kind of theme runs through all of Isaiah. God, the king of the universe, calling his people and eventually the nations and the false gods of the nations as well to account. Uh, Or again, verse 18, a, a similar kind of legal metaphor, except spinning in a positive direction. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together. Approach the bench. Let's reason together. Let's uh, interrogate this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. The opening chapter speaks about the outrageous nature of Israel's sin, but it's especially outrageous because of who Israel are, who they were meant to be. So they are the child, verse 2, that God brought up and reared. Um, They are, in verse 4, children who have forsaken the Lord, who've spurned the Holy One of Israel, who've turned their backs on him. They were meant to be the ones who belonged to the Holy One of Israel, who turned their face towards him. Um, Verse 8 there, uh, it's daughter of Zion, meant to be this 
this great uh, manifestation of God's promises and God's favour. Or in verse 21, a faithful city is how they were made. A city of righteousness and justice they were meant to be. And so it's really outrageous that Zion, the daughter of Zion, the children of God, the, the holy faithful city has now turned and become, as, as Isaiah rebukes them throughout this passage, a harlot city, a Sodom, a Gomorrah, a, a rebellious city. And yet all the way through this chapter, we skipped this the other week, all the way through this chapter as we get God challenging and rebuking and scolding Israel for its injustice and its corruption and uh, its failures spiritually, socially, personally. We get these, these lines of hope, even in the opening chapter, as it's confronting and saying, listen up, I've got a judgment against you. There are these lines still of hope, even right in the middle of this. So verse 8 and following uh, describes how God will preserve people of his own even through catastrophic judgment. Verse 8, the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. They, They would have been completely wiped out. But God has kept some in a hut, in a field with melons, but some God has preserved still. Or again, that verse 18 I read before, come, let us reason together. Uh-oh. Come, come forward. Let us reason together. Oh, no. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. How amazing. Though they're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the best from the land and you'll resist and rebel, then you'll be devoured by the sword. So God's inviting, actually, a way for even those whose sins are like scarlet, uh, I part-time homeschool, um, oh, my wife and I part-time homeschool our teenage daughter and we're, um, we're at the moment doing a little thing on um, the Shakespeare play Macbeth. Maybe many of you had to do that during school or homeschool as well. I don't know. It's a, it's a ripper. Um, but what's really interesting in, in the play, I mean, so much about it, but the character of Lady Macbeth, she is just something else. And, um, and in a lot of the play, um, she's the defiant person who says, hey, you can get what you want and you don't have to worry about the consequences. You can play the game. You can be who you want to be. You can change the way nature works. You can shut up heaven itself and angle things for your benefit. And she's confident and controlling while her husband is cowardly and caving in and, and pricked by his conscience and unsettled and seeing visions and she's going, oh, come on, just chill out, be cool, Macbeth, come on, be cool. But it doesn't last even for her, spoiler alert, but look, if you haven't read Macbeth yet, I think you can kind of spoil it, can't you? That's allowed. <laughs> Elizabethan plays can be spoiled. Um, uh, that, um, that in the end... Um, even she is so burned by conscience that she sees her hands as impossibly bloody, as she shared in the, the murders to bring about her husband's accession to the throne. Uh, she can't get the spots of blood out. And she's agonised and tormented for suicide eventually. She cannot get the blood out. If only I could... That guilt is like that, like a stain of blood that we can't get out, like a spot of blood we just cannot remove. It just sits with us and it weighs on us and, it, and sinks down deep inside of us. Maybe not as terrible as murdering someone to gain the throne, but we have our own little guilts. And they sit with us and they stain and, they, and we can't remove it. But God says, even though your sin is, is a glaring stain weighing on your conscience, I can forgive. 
I can wash it clean. What an amazing promise that is to people full of guilt, full of shame, full of actual guilt for doing actual things wrong. Wow. Amazing. Verse 25, yet another promise in the middle of judgment. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in days of old, your counsellors as at the beginning. And afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. That actually the judgment will become a cleansing, purging fire for a future restoration. Side by side then in this opening chapter, judgment and mercy, exposure of guilt and cleansing of guilt. And so, as I said the other week, that we kind of see in the one city, two cities sort of at work. The, the faithless city, the Sodom and Gomorrah, and then still, even then, a remnant of the Zion, of the ones who trust, the ones who hope, the ones who will become the city of righteousness. The, the people of this world and the people of God in the midst of it, in the, in the one place. It's a theme we'll see throughout Isaiah. It's also a theme that was uh, famously captured up by a, a, a very influential Christian theologian, Augustine, who in his book, The City of God, describes the whole world in that kind of way. He was looking at, um, at Rome beginning to fall apart after it had become Christianised. Before his day, people couldn't help but think, oh, Roman has become Christian. It's like, it's like the kingdom of God has come. The purposes of God's history is here because now even Rome has become, you know, the ends of the earth have now been Christianised. Uh, the kingdom of God has arrived on earth and then it starts crumbling. Barbarians at the borders and the collapse of the whole infrastructure. Well, well hang on, what happened to the kingdom of God? People began to wonder. And Augustine said, no, you've got to realise this whole world, God is doing his work in a world that is also turning away. At the same time, both things are always happening at the same time. In the church, in the Roman Empire, in Australia, in America, in China, in this room. Here's how he describes it. This is from Augustine's City of God. We see then two cities were created by two kinds of love in the same place. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as, uh, as far as contempt of self. In fact, the earthly city glorifies in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. The former looks for the glory from people. The latter finds its highest glory in God, the witness of a good conscience. The earthly lifts up its head to its own glory. The heavenly city says to its God, my glory, you lift up my head. In the former, the lust for domination lords it over its princes as over the nations it subjugates. In the other, both these put in authority and those subject to them serve one another in love. The rulers by their counsel, the subjects by obedience. The one city loves its own strength, shown in its powerful leaders. The other says to God, I will love you, my Lord, my strength. All through the world, two lives, two realities are being lived side by side in this room, in this city, in our country, in our world, the people of God, the people of the world, the city of God, the city of man, the community of obedience, the community of rebellion, the civilization and society shaped by the gospel or by false gods and false gospels. And it's like throughout Isaiah's prophecy, he's challenging his hearers and, and, and by God's spirit, he's challenging you. Which city do you live in? Where are you? What are you working towards? What, uh, what university have you got your student card with ultimately? Is your studies for yourself and your pride and your career and human wisdom alone? 
Or are you pursuing those things to God's glory to see how the truths of your area of study are connected with God's truth? Are you living for self and love of self and domination of others and pleasure? Or are you living for God's glory and the love of others, serving others in love? Where is your security? Where is your sense of self? Where is the whole shape of your life going? Is it for the city of this world? Or is it the city for God's glory? Last time we looked at these chapters, uh, we followed through the description of the city of humanity, what the Jerusalem currently was through a lot of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. We saw this, and into chapter 5, this damning description of the corruptions and the false worship and the uh, self-absorption and the, the universe of trinkets that consume people in various ways, what Jerusalem is. In the rest of our time today, we're going to look at those two little sections that I had you read, uh, really amazing little sections um, of what Zion will be. This is the hope for the city of God, even in the middle of all the wretchedness. This is what they're called to and what they one day will be. Let's have a look at them. Um, First, chapter 2, the mountain of the Lord's temple. Let's read it again together. The mountain of the Lord's temple. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between the nations. He'll settle disputes for many peoples. They'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let's walk in the light of the Lord. This is not actually the, the scale of the hill upon which Jerusalem sits or its place in geopolitics at that time or in our time. But it's a vision of what one day will be, that the, the, city on which Jerusalem, the hill on which the city of Jerusalem sits will be raised up in stature, this prophecy says, and become like the centre of the planet, the central city of the world, the place of the peace with God and the wisdom of God that brings life and light and peace and harmony to the whole world. So they'll get their weapons and turn them into farming implements. <laughs> um, that's such a vivid picture. There's no longer a need for defence and attack and control and coercion. But instead it's like, well, what do we do with this? I don't know. I guess we could make a good kind of pruning hook out of it. Let's do that. that that's what we're left with. It, it, it's, it's a place where people can make, make peace with God and where, from which all the nations of the world hear about the word of God. It's a glorious vision. It's, it's a vision. It's not, it's not, we must be careful as we read um, prophecies in the Bible to realise they are pictorial, metaphorical descriptions. Um, so it's not that we have to say with each of these prophecies we have to look for a concrete um, ge- geological formation of the ascension of the city of, of um, uh, Jerusalem being raised up in elevation higher and higher. That, that's not the point. It's an image to say... God's people and the centre of God's people, where a temple and so on is, shall be elevated to be of most importance of all. Yeah, It's a vision of the promise of, to Abraham right at the beginning of the Bible being kind of transposed in a different key 
The promise to Abraham was, hey, Abraham, go to the land I'll show you and I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless those who bless you and have a curse as you cursed and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. That's this, isn't it? Here is the land that Abraham was shown and here is that blessing. All nations of the world will be blessed through you. Now coming to fulfilment, pitched now in terms of the mountain of the Lord and Zion and Jerusalem and so forth. How's it fulfilled? Where do we see the fulfilment of this prophecy? It's not in the geological elevation of the hill of Jerusalem. How is it that God's people, God's promise, God's temple, God's salvation reaches the ends of the earth? Well, it's in Matthew 28, where all authority is given to Jesus Christ, the temple of the Lord, the Messiah of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord. And he says to his disciples, go then out to all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I command you and I'll be with you to the end of the age. There in Jesus, we see all the promises about Jerusalem and Zion and Judah and, and the Christ coming to fulfillment. And then people coming to Jesus and Jesus' people going to the world. We see the fulfillment of this promise as we wait for its final glorious fulfillment in his return. He is the temple. He is the people of God. He is the saviour of God. He is the mountain of God. And he sends his evangelists out into all the world to be God's people, to be ones in whom the Spirit dwells. In fact, the New Testament goes on to say we are the temple of the Spirit, the church and the individual Christian. So wherever we go, we bring the temple at the very centre of Zion with us. Here as God's people meet and God's Spirit is amongst us. You've got a mobile Zion a mobile mountain of the Lord here in Hobart, as we find elsewhere in the world, bringing with us the mercy of God, the salvation of God, the temple of God, the gospel of God. And peace and harmony is the consequence of that salvation. Verse 4, judging between the nations, settling disputes, the beating of the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks, the bringing of peace. That's enjoyed at its best even now when the church is really the church, when God's people are really God's people consequence of our salvation is the bringing of peace and kindness and love and justice with us we're, we're still not perfect in this life we're still often tangled up in the sins and confusions of this world and so it's not always that glorious in this life but we, we still see it we still see cases where god's people bring this kind of peace in this life even as we hope for jesus return and the final putting down of all arms and setting aside of all disputes and guarantee of complete justice. It's a great picture, eh? Let's look at chapter four. Chapter four. The branch of the Lord. The branch of the Lord. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, and all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He'll cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all Mount Zion and over all those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It'll be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and the rain. Glorious branch. What is the branch? The image of a branch is like a new growth from God, a new branch springing up. 
It's connected with the land here and the flourishing land. Back uh, forward in chapter 11, the same kind of image gets used, especially connected with the Messiah, but again with the Messiah who will bring blessing to the land. So in Isaiah 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, that's King David's family line. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and power, wisdom, knowledge, fear of the Lord. He'll delight in the fear of the Lord. And it says about how he'll bring justice and righteousness even to the poor and there will be blessing in the land. The wolf lying down with the lamb and the leopard with the goat and the calf with the lion and so forth. It is the new growth from God connected with the saving Messiah and bringing blessing to the land. It's that that connection of images. I think because of the agricultural metaphor of the branch and the growth, it suggests a new thing that will bring blessing and fruitfulness to the land. Life flourishing for God's people in God's place under God's saving rule. And so the survivors, remember we talked about the melon patch hut? Well, here they are. The survivors, those God spared, um, will then benefit from this as they faithfully wait in the midst of judgment with hope and patience. Now, verse 2, uh, uh, the survivors in Israel will be God's pride and glory. Those left in Zion, verse 3, who remain in Jerusalem will now be holy and recorded amongst the names. There is cleansing and sanctification for God's people. The, the specific mention of women, I think, is just because that was the prior metaphor in chapter, end of chapter 3, the start of chapter 4. So it's not as if somehow just the women are filthy and the men are clean. It's just picking up um, that flow of thought. Men and women alike, ultimately, will be cleansed and purified without that shame, without guilt, without uncleanness, purged, burned, and yet survived, washed, declared holy. And God will be with them, verses 5 and 6. It's a great metaphor here, great picture. It picks up on the wanderings right way back in Exodus and Numbers, that God now is present with the cloud of fire, smoke by day and flaming fire by night. His glory will be a canopy over them. Shelter, protection, presence, guidance, picking up on the Exodus. Wherever they went, God led them. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. God was with them. God was present among them. They will be God's new people on a new pilgrimage with the presence of the Lord with them. And again, how fulfilled? Who's the branch? Well, it's Jesus is the ultimate son of David, the, the Messiah in the line of David. He is the one who is the branch from the stump of Jesse, the one who brings forgiveness of sins through his atoning death, gives us his righteousness in place of our sinfulness, reconciles us to God, and so declares us his holy people, now leads and guides us by his spirit through his word. His spirit kills our sinful selves and makes us new. In him we enjoy the blessing of God as he leads us to the final rest to come. Let's have a check out of um, Hebrews chapter 11 as it pulls some of these things together. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about various people, the faithful remnant types who were hoping and longing for God's promises to come to fulfilment. Speaking about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in Hebrews chapter 11, 
verse 9. It says, By faith Abraham made his home a promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city with foundation, whose architect and builder is God. A little further on in verse 11, all these people were still living by faith when they died. Hebrews 11, verse 11. They didn't receive the things they promised. They only saw them and welcomed them for distance. And they admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking about the country they'd left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Verse 39. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they promised. God planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, chapter 12, what does this all mean for us today, Tuesday the 10th of August? Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Isaiah, son of Amos, his hearers, the faithful remnant, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's really saying what the final bit of Isaiah 2 says. Come, O house of Jacob, let's walk in the light of the Lord. In the light of the Lord, in the light of the Lord's Saviour Jesus, in the light of the Lord's Saviour Jesus and his gospel and his ways and his promise. Walk that way. Run, Hebrews says, that way. <laughs> Throw off the self-centeredness and the uh, rejection of God and, and, and a consumption with the things of this world that so easily entangle us and absorb us and consume us. And the squabbles and the fights and the outrage and the, uh, all these things which pull us down into the city of this world. Walk in God's way. See the light of God's word. See the light of God's promises and God's hope. What Jesus has done. What he has achieved. Where he is now seated. Walk. Follow. Run. Don't lose heart. In the middle of the world where there is so much to fear and there's so much to dishearten us, and there's so much that hurts us, and the horrible thing is we play a part in it ourselves. There's so much that sticks to us, so much that twists us up, takes us the wrong way. In a world like that, in a world when even we are pure and righteous, we're mistreated and mocked and scoffed at and excluded. Hang on to God's promise. Walk in his ways. Speak his word. More in a world where these promises have partly been fulfilled already in Jesus and his gospel. Tell that word to others. Speak it out. Hey, come with me. Let's walk in the, in, in the light of the Lord. Hey, let's go up to Mount Zion to Jesus and, and receive his blessing. But yeah, we're faithfully waiting, but actually we're also faithfully already benefiting from and sharing with others the fulfilment of God's promises here in Isaiah. Let's pray.
A loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy to those who don't deserve it, your love to your enemies, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while you looked at a faithless city deserving of judgment, you promised to wash scarlet sin white as snow, to purge and restore and renew Zion as a faithful city. And we see that astonishing loving kindness and grace made good in the saving work of Jesus Christ, his atoning death and victorious resurrection, the gift of the Spirit to make us new and apply the benefits of Jesus to our lives. It's amazing. It's undeserved. It's wonderful. We thank you for it. We cling on to it and we pray that you lead us in that way. Lead us in this life in those ways, in the light of your word. Um, make us, bless us with our words that we can share that message with others. And we long for Christ's return when these things will come to their final and glorious fulfilment. We long for that day and we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.